Welcome back to this episode of the Your Daily Pass podcast. You're here with your co-hosts, Fiona Daly and Courtney Passfield. We are bringing back another beautiful, raw and authentic, unedited conversation for you guys to listen to. So enjoy. Courtney, conversations with... I know, conversations with. We love a good conversation. We do. And, you know, when we do our, when we have people book with us, we get them to write out some information about themselves. And it's just a chance for us to get to know them, what we're going to chat about and all those things. And sometimes one of us will just get the heart pings. Mm. And these were my heart pings. Yes, yeah. I, we Before we jumped on mic to Erica, I did say to you, I feel like this is going to be a you conversation and I feel like you're just going to feel really connected. But it also could bring up quite a bit of trauma for you too because you guys in different ways yeah. have lived very similar. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think when, when you have a sick child and there's all the other things going on with life, you know, like we just said, that you can't actually pause everything else yeah to stop and focus unfortunately it would be wonderful if the world worked like that but i'm really really looking forward to sharing this conversation we do have the pleasure of welcoming welcoming erica olenski johansson and we are so proud to have you with us today thanks for joining us thank you for having me it's such a pleasure Oh, so good. So I, we sort of just touched on the uh, the sick child conversation, but Erica, I'd love you to kind of kick us off by sharing your journey um, and just giving our listeners a, a real taste of who you are. Yeah, for sure. So my son, I have two boys. My youngest son, when he was five months old, was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer, completely out of the blue, you know, I had a full-term pregnancy, was breastfeeding, doing all the things that you would want to try to do to ensure that your baby's taken care of. And it was my second baby, so not my first rodeo. And my mama intuition was firing. Um, he had about four days at five and a half months old that he was throwing up without a fever. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, couldn't quite figure out what was going on. But everything told me, you know, something, something's off. Um, and we, as a family at that time, it's a bit of a turbulent time. We were actually in the process of selling our house a bit as a Hail Mary to move across the country and kind of restart fresh for our own mental health. We wanted to live somewhere new, somewhere closer to where we wanted to build a life for ourselves um, that would be a better work-life balance, just closer to nature, closer to hobbies that we wanted. So we had spent the previous two months just gutting the house of all the things that we had and saying, we're not, if we don't want to pay for the move for this item, it's out, it's gone. We just decluttered everything. And so about four days before we accepted an offer on the sale of the house, my son August started throwing up and it was just persistent um, and that weekend, we were planning on taking him to the location of our new our new home and kind of finalizing all the details regarding the move. And um, we accepted an offer on the sale of the house. And four hours later, I took him in proactively. Again, mama, mama bear vibes going off, trying to figure out what's going on, um, thinking I'm going to take him in and just get fluids in his system get whatever bug he's fighting. Let's just knock it out before we go out of town. And when I bring him into the ER, 
um, I'm looking at him under the lights, and I can just tell he does not look well. And so I'm sitting there holding him in the, the lobby. The nurse calls us up to go get triage, and it was at the end of the shift for the day. Um, so 7 o'clock when they do their shift change. And the nurse that was on duty for the day um, had just had a couple patients wind up in the intensive care unit of the ER uh, department. And she saw us walk in. She says, I'm not doing another one of those. And she kept saying that over and over again. And I really wasn't sure at this time what was going on. So they start doing the vitals on my son, seeing what's going on, just trying to get a baseline of where we're at. And his blood pressure at that point was dropping. And I had no idea. Um, And he was severely dehydrated and still no fever, but all of his other like oxygen blood pressure were not where we wanted them to be. So she kind of sighed, looked at me and was like, oh, dang, you know, and brings them back into the ICU department of the children's hospital. So we get back there and the doctor, um, the doctor on call or the, the physician that was there working for the day. She goes, you know, you know, what's going on? Tell me what's going, you know, tell me what the dynamic is. And um, she's asking me, you know, has he been dehydrated? I said, no, I've been watching the soft spot on the top of his head. You know, as a mom, that's the thing I look for. Make sure it's not sunken in the sign of dehydration. She goes, yeah, but this is a little more firm than I would expect. I'm just going to run a CT. I'm going to see what's going on. Just make sure we can rule out any of the scary stuff. So I'm sitting down in the chair in front of the ICU and about 20 minutes later, she walks up to me and doesn't say anything, sits down in front of me, kneels on the ground and looks at me and says, Oh fuck. And at this point I'm deer in headlights. Right. Cause I'm like, I don't, what do I do? She goes, he has a mass on his brain. He needs to get in front of the neuro team right now. I need you to go into his room and keep him awake for us until we can get him on the care flight downtown. Oh my God. And, and so at this point, my whole world just fell apart. I mean, everything, I just sold my house hours before this was planning this big move across the country as a, a, a big experience to empower our family and really get us on a track of health and well-being. And it was all just ripped out right from under me in that very moment. Um, Cause at this point I'm thinking my child's dying. Right. And I, I need to get him help right now. And for all intents and purposes, he was. So I go into the room and I start singing him a song to keep him awake as as he kind of navigates all the bright lights and everyone poking and prodding him and all of that stuff. So we finally get on the care flight and we get to the hospital downtown and um, over the course of the weekend come to learn that the tumor was in a really, really unfortunate place. It had developed around his brainstem and spinal cord at the base of his skull and acted like a boulder in his brain to stop the uh, brain fluid from draining like it would properly in the absence of a tumor. So it kind of just add, act like acted like a plug and a drain. And all of the brain fluid was building up pressure, which is what was causing the vomiting. Wow. And so they had to do an emergency procedure to put some tubes in his brain area to drain the excess fluid, get him stable. And during the MRI, they, they learned that not only was this tumor in an unfortunate place, but it had two big arteries running through the center of it, giving it a really, really strong blood supply. 
Um, the doctor, when he spoke with us, explained that the size of him as an infant is the total volume of blood in his body is less than what they would have expected to lose in a similar surgery in an older child. So their main concerns too were one, we, if we don't do the surgery, we know he won't make it. If we do the surgery, the likelihood he'll survive the surgery is low because we're going to need blood transfusions. We expect to need blood transfusions. And I don't know how long his body will be able to tolerate those blood transfusions and continue to clot the way we need it to so that we can kind of preserve the surgery to go forward. When he's delivering us to this conversation, he took us to the, the back room of the, the trauma oh, ICU to yeah. talk with us. <laughs> you're like, is this real life? Yeah. I'm you know, you're just right. sitting there and I'm just like, there's how, like, this isn't my life. I just had a healthy baby like a moment ago. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how is this real? And, you know, my son, he, he's a innocent child. And um, so they did, they got him stable through the weekend, were able to get an A team on the surgery and did the first of two brain surgeries on that Monday following this all transpired on Friday night. And that Monday, the team came in and did a 14 hour brain surgery to remove the tumor at five and a half months old. Wow. And by some miraculous feat, he survived. <laughs> it's unbelievable. That's incredible. Um, and and frankly, the team didn't expect it either. They were stunned that he was able to get through it. Um, the pathology report later revealed that it was an aggressive form of brain cancer called an anaplastic ependymoma. There's actually a Grey's Anatomy episode about it. It was one of those obscure diagnoses that <laughs> they, they framed a whole episode around. And it's very uncommon and exceptionally uncommon in infants and young children. Um, so uncommon that there's not a treatment protocol or there really wasn't one that was accepted um, when we received the diagnosis for his age being only five months old. Um, they will not do photon radiation on the brain under a year old because the brain isn't developed enough to be able to tolerate the radiation without becoming effectively brain dead as a result of it. So we had to proceed with doing four rounds of chemo to buy time until he could get closer to one year old. At that point, we had another brain surgery and uh, followed up with proton therapy, which is a new form of radiation that's hyper-targeted that we were able to use. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So my first question is to you. How did you go about trying to catch your breath when this is between Friday and Monday that your entire world crumbled. How do you how do you deal with that yourself? I was paralyzed, truly. I just became very stoic. Um, during the surgery itself, too, my sister had came. She'd flown in from Hawaii on a standby flight to be there, and I I remember laying on the bed in the room, just completely numb. And, and not that I wasn't feeling, but it was just the intensity of all of it. Um, I just remember her at the time playing with my hair <laughs> and <laughs> rubbing my head and, you know, just consoling me kind of mother-like. And um, I had a, an interesting flashback, you know, 
later on, I put some pieces together and this is one of those chill moments, but part of the day on that surgery day, um, we did go outside thankfully and got some fresh air because 14 hours is a long time, (laughs) a long time to sit, stand by and wonder what's going on with your child. Exactly. And at, at one point we were out in the courtyard of the facility of the health system. And a couple, a couple months later, so this was in May of 2019. In November of 2019, I had a Facebook memory show up on my feed. And it was a memory that I had shared on November 3rd, 2011. And the memory said, are you ever stunned by your dreams and confused about what they mean? I just had a dream that I had brain surgery on the lawn of a mansion, but I was wide awake through all of it. The first surgery, I had two brain surgeries. The first surgery, I was totally okay. After the second surgery, I was an emotional wreck. What does this mean? Yeah. And I wrote this in 2011. This is even before I was married, before I had children. And the only thing I can think of is that, you know, part of me, right, was knowing of this future experience of some sort. Yeah. And, and that I came to me in a dream that that was something on my path. Yeah. And, and so in hindsight, how I spent that time was exactly how I imagined that dream. It was laying down in the courtyard of a large facility and the dream, it was a mansion, but effectively it was the same environment. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can't believe you shared that on Facebook. It was like a memory. I know. I know. It was unbelievable. I just was stunned every year. I share it now. And I just say every year, I still don't believe this. (laughs) I can't believe I wrote this. Oh my gosh. That, that has actually blown my mind. I can't believe that. So what about your older son? How did, how does he go with, everything happening how old was he he was four four years old um so he was just old enough to kind of know the stories of what was going on but not quite old enough to understand the gravity of the situation which i think was a blessing and a curse um because i think he did incur a lot more stress than he ever realized and maybe i realized even at the time um at that moment and, and where he was developmentally you know, I could tell and explain to him and he trusted me, which I'm so grateful for. So after his younger brother's uh, surgery, I took a baby doll that we had had from his baby shower <laughs> that just lingered around our house. <laughs> and I got some extra equipment um, for oxygen tubing and things like that from the nurses in the ICU. And I fashioned the baby to match what his brother looked like in the bed. And I let him play with it. And I let him kind of be a nurse and understand like, oh, this is what this does. And this is what this does. And at four, I think that was the right thing to help normalize what he was seeing yes. and give him a chance to explore without risking, obviously, you know, his, his younger brother's health. Absolutely. And to take away some of that, that scare factor 
because it uh-huh. is it is so scary. Um, you know, Erica, before we started, when I said that you and I have a lot in common, my daughter had eight surgeries and my son was two and a half when she was born. So, you know, we had all these different events where we're in ICU in the same thing. You know, she's hooked up to all these machines and it's it's so confronting. And the conversation between my husband and I was do we bring him in and let her let him see her like this because he's so young and he has to try and understand but it was it was so powerful to to bring him in and explain to him and I wish that we'd thought about getting a doll yeah, because that, doll that would have been so incredible smart. but but you know as a parent it is just so hard when there's still another child there that you've got to then explain this too, but explain it so that they don't think the world is such a dark and scary place all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just... You, you had... I mean, Fiona started crying nearly as soon as you started talking and I... <laughs> it was the room. When you said about that room, I was like, I've been in that room and that's not nice. It's not a nice room to be in. I started crying. I don't know if you saw my face. I had to tilt my face off the camera. Uh, when you started talking about your sister, I... That that got me, and I I'll never forget. Sorry, when when my daughter was born, it was a few hours later before they discovered that there was something wrong. And Courtney, the paediatrician, came in and she looked at her and she said, "I've got to go." And she ran down the hallway, and we all just looked at each other like that's not good. And when they came back, they said, you know, my Courtney was there and my mother-in-law and they said, do you want them to step out? And we weren't worried, but they went and stepped outside and, and it all became very rushed and we had to be flown away. And that's why Courtney's really feeling it because everybody else went to pack a bag and she climbed in bed with my yeah, baby and I. Yeah, yeah. And it was in that moment, it was probably the first time that I was like, holy dooly, you don't know the significance of having a sister. And so you guys, and you saying, you know, she was playing my hair. I, I know that feeling of laying in the bed. And I, I think I felt for your sister in that moment of going, yeah, I know what it's like to lay in that bed and feel so helpless in that in that moment. So, yeah, when you said that, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that I, I, I get she was, that. She was so strong. You know, she was so strong. And to... To give that mother energy to your sister is like one of the most powerful things I think that exists. It's just like the fullest expression of femininity and the power of being a woman and being able to embrace all of those different, you know, expressions at once um, and be able to, to truly, I could just outsource all of my energy to her and said, I need you to take care of that. And I'm just going to be here and be present. And that is the best gift I think I could have ever been given is to have that person there to take that on for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, Cause like I we said, the, you can't pause the world. It's but... so hard. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. But sometimes you can, if you've got a sister, yeah. <laughs> you can, exactly. you yeah. can, you can yeah. pause it. Your sister can take it for you for a little while. Yeah, exactly. Courtney actually left the hospital with my son and he stayed with her for a little while. Yeah. 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 So it's just, it's bringing back a lot of emotions. Yeah, I feel like um, I'm understanding you on so many different levels. That is, that's for sure. So this is between Friday afternoon and Monday, and then you're able to have the next surgery. Where 
and, you know, the chemo and things like that. Where after that, because he's still... He's so little. So little. Yeah, yeah. So he got through four rounds of the big gun chemo, the nasty stuff that is just no, you know, full stop. We're going to just go as as much as we can to get rid of whatever we can, but if anything, keep it from growing. And that was truly the goal. It wasn't to necessarily get rid of the cancer with the chemo. This type of cancer isn't typically very responsive to chemo either. Um, but it was our path forward. It's how we could get him to a year old. And it was the only solution we had to be able to do that. So we went through chemo. Um, one of the chemotherapy drugs used is known to cause permanent hearing loss. Um, so we would do a sedated ABR, which effectively is a, is a hearing test every time we would have a round of chemo to see if the hearing loss had progressed anymore. And um, the last round, it had progressed more, and so we actually scaled that drug back a little bit on the final round. Um, and unfortunately, my son has suffered permanent hearing loss as a result of that drug. Um, and so he's actually completely deaf in his left ear, probably in combination because of that and then a later health event as well. So we get through chemo and we're approaching proton therapy, which is our next big thing that we have to tackle. And to, in order to do that, that would require him to be fully sedated every day, every business day for seven weeks. So they'd have to do general anesthesia every single day for seven weeks to keep him completely still to receive this radiation because it's sub-millimeter precision. And the outcomes for this radiation, the, the team met and they agreed that having a second surgery prior to going through the radiation to try to remove anything else they possibly could would double his chance of survival long-term. So we decided to proceed with a second surgery and um, it happened on Yom Kippur, which if you're familiar, Yom Kippur is the day in which God writes who will live and who will die the following year. Um, (laughs) So it was a very ominous, that's a very boiled down version. I'm I'm sure there's a much more uh, uh, theological way to explain it, but Um, To me, it it felt like a, it wasn't ominous. It was a, it was this like nod from the universe that, that he was going to be taken care of, that his name would be written in the book for the next year, having that surgery occur in the holy hours of, of that, um, of that day and holiday. We went through that surgery and um, he survived that one. It was another nine hour surgery. They were able to remove nearly all of the tumor that they could see remaining, um, which was wonderful news. And uh, to the best of our knowledge, following the surgery, he was moving his fingers and toes and and things like that, that we would look at to make sure that, you know, everything was working the way it needed to. So we get back to the trauma ICU room. And the next day they do an MRI for a post-op MRI to see how did the surgery go? Did we get everything we thought we needed? Um, just really doing that follow-up, which you can't do when you're in the OR. And in that surgery, um, the, his neurosurgeon 
came to share the results with us. And he says, well, I have good news. and I have bad news. I said, okay. He said, well, good news is we got this. We got the tumor. We got as much as we could see. It looks beautiful going into proton therapy. Yeah, I think we're in great shape. The bad news is that he has suffered a brainstem stroke as a complication from the surgery. And you could just tell this physician was gutted to share that news with us. I think in a lot of ways, I also later found out that uh, he, he had shared that he just, you know, felt a little like he had failed the, the, the procedure. And my reaction in that moment, I'm still stunned by, but my response was, that's okay. We will just have different tools in our toolbox and we will figure it out. (laughs) So I, I don't know how I responded that way, but I think it was a good example of just my mentality through a lot of this, that despite any obstacle that was placed in our path, um, I just always looked for that silver lining and say, okay, well, we can problem solve. We're resourceful. There's nothing that we can't do. We can figure out a way to make it work. And maybe part of it was denial and delusion and kind of that grief cycle. Um, But I do think that some of that was part of kind of who I am as a person too, that definitely kind of poured myself into this whole experience and helped support him get through it. Um, We later found out that my son was temporarily paralyzed on the right side of his body. Um, So he didn't need to actually have restraints following the surgery. He was really struggling to move his right leg and his right arm. Um, And he also suffered left side facial paralysis as well as a result of the stroke. Um, So eating and drinking and things were really difficult. Um, The stroke occurred in cranial nerves five, six, and seven, um, which I later came to find out from one of our ophthalmology doctors that Cranial nerves five and seven are no good if they are injured in together. Um, Because five, six, and seven control a lot of the nerves around the eyes. They help move your eye around. They also help control your vocal cords. So what this meant was when we went to extubate my son um, following the surgery, um, he wasn't really successfully able to be extubated. Um, every time we went to remove the breathing tube, um, he would struggle, he would do okay for about an hour and then become really laborious. And we came to find out that his vocal cords were paralyzed from this experience and from the stroke, um, paralyzed shut, which meant that anytime he went to try to breathe out, it was like the door was shut and he couldn't breathe without a whole lot of energy. Wow. So, um, uh, on my older son's day of his birthday party. Um, we took my older son to an airplane museum and had, you know, kind of changed our mindset. We were waiting to hear on an update about his extubation and, um, they weren't able to successfully, successfully extubate again. So, uh, so we went back to the hospital and they said that he would need to have a trach placed, um, to be able to bypass that airway until hopefully one day it could heal. Um, and so my son now is dependent on a trach to breathe, which adds a whole other world of complexity, um, to caregiving and just daily life and nuances to, to things we do. Um, but he has thrived 
beyond expectation, despite all of the extra equipment that he gets to carry with him on a day-to-day basis. Wow. How old is August now? He is going to be four years old in November. That is amazing. He has been through just so, so, so much. So much. And he's so lucky to have you. You are incredible. Thank you. I I feel like I was meant to be his mom in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know And he I- was meant for me. Totally. You know, my favorite quote um, when it comes to thinking about all of like everything that I've been through and it sounds like everything that you've been through is you never know how strong you are until strong is the only option you've got. Yeah. And that is exhausting too, though. (laughs) That'll wear you out after a while. Yeah. Um, But I absolutely agree. I think you do find strength that you never would have found otherwise. I think until you are put in a position to have no other option yeah. and that resilience, I think is um, it's a beautiful thing. If you can lean into that and embrace that strength too for yourself. Yes, absolutely. So how do you go? Cause you just said that that's exhausting. And so it, you know, I come with a question of, how do, and this is for both of you ladies, it's one of those things that, you know, when people go, oh my God, you're so strong, you're so this, you're so that, do you, do you get, I don't want to say sick of hearing that, but in a sense, I don't know, like, do you ever feel when people say that to you, you're like, yeah, I don't have the choice, like, it, do you ever feel like people are saying it in the way that you have a choice and you're like, I don't have, this is, this is just who I am. Uh, not real. At the time is there literally is no other choice. So it's kind of, I think, I think when big things are happening to you, you hear it so much that it's not, it's deaf ears. Like it falls on deaf ears for me. Yeah. What about you, Erica? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I've responded to that differently at different points in this journey kind of like you said, I think at first you just are so focused on the task at hand that you don't even really hear it, that you just keep moving forward and like, that's nice. I'm glad you think that about me. I'm going to go take care of this now. Yeah. (laughs) And, and and you just keep going. Um, As I started to process the grief of losing a healthy baby and letting that go and kind of that I did discover was a strength and taking a lot of the energy that I had been putting into supporting his care, especially as he became a little more independent, um, taking that in combination with the grief and applying it to something really constructively. Um, So one of the things that I've done for myself is really learned and I'm continuing to learn about how to care for myself as a mom and how do I mother myself like that inner child, right? How do I make sure yeah. that she's taken care of um, so that she feels safe and supported and can go pursue the things that she wants to do the same intensity that I would provide to my, my two boys. Um, ultimately that, that turned into something really neat. So during COVID quarantine, 
Um, and I'll back up a little bit. So after his proton therapy, and we got through that whole experience, um, unfortunately, the experience was a little, um, it was too traumatic for my marriage to my ex-husband to get through that. And so we concluded my son's treatment by also getting a divorce. And that was about two weeks before the COVID quarantine began. So I ended up at home, a newly single mother, with now a son who's medically considered medically fragile and an older son who has experienced enormous amount of trauma related to the whole family circumstances over the previous year at a minimum. And I had a lot of energy that I needed to work through. Um, the way I think about it is a little bit of like digesting energy. I, I had to metabolize it. I had to work through it. I had to get it out of my system somehow. And the only thing I could do to do that was go running. And so a little like Forrest Gump, I just started running and then didn't stop. <laughs> so through COVID quarantine, I put my older son in a, in a stroller. I didn't sure my younger son was taken care of at home with the nurse that we had because he ultimately qualified for private duty nursing in the home, which has been an enormous help for us. Yeah. Um, and I just started running. And so that summer leaned into running and ultimately found a triathlon team to begin running and training with in the fall. Um, so that foundation I laid that summer was critical for me being able to participate in that. Um, and what was really neat is that in the fall of last year, in September of last year, I was able to complete an Ironman triathlon um, to, to really, I think, emotionally and physically celebrate getting through such an enormous experience and life-changing experience. Um, but then myself having control over that one other outcome of saying, I chose this for myself. This is a, a symbol an expression of my healing and the energy and love that I've provided to my two boys through this whole thing. Wow. Mm. That is incredible. And to, to, to put everything into that, that's unreal because I find, you know, as mums, just as any mum without children that are ill, we don't do that, do we? We don't put the work into, you know, nurturing ourselves and nurturing our own inner child. It just becomes all about the kids and all about the home life and everything else. So that is incredible. I'm, I am just in awe of, of you. Thank you. It, thank you so much. Um, it, it was interesting. It was a little bit of a life hack to be completely honest too, for myself. Cause when you go through grief, and you are caring for yourself and trying to prioritize self-care, um, especially with the competing demands of having a medically fragile child, really hard to make time for that. Yeah. So maybe in a way to life hack the situation, I chose a really extreme sport <laughs> to <laughs> ensure I couldn't negotiate out of a workout. If I had a long run that day, I had to make it work. Um, I had to put my son in a stroller and, and push him in the stroller to get that long run in if I had to, or I had to use my bike trainer at home and spend a couple hours on my bike at home um, instead of going out for a bike ride. And I think being able to not 
put myself in a place to negotiate out of a workout meant that I had to honor the self-care I had scheduled for myself. And that I believe was critical for me, both getting through and lessening the intensity of the trauma. Cause I think if I tried to process it all right away, it would have just consumed me. So being able to draw it out a little bit like taffy over the course of a year and process it as I went made it more manageable and I'm still working through it. Right. But I think being able to take all of that and apply myself into something really constructive that I could feel good about and that fueled me and my health and well-being at the same time was a huge gift for me to be able to, to explore. Yeah. And a gift for you to be able to teach your boys that, you know, you need to put that time into self-care. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to ask you about your alopecia because in yes. in all of these things, Erica, your hair has decided to leave hair town. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so alopecia is... Um, it's, a, it's considered a rare disease. It's an autoimmune condition that affects about 7 million men and women globally. Um, they've either had the diagnosis at some point in life or they will have it at some point. And um, which relative to the global population isn't enormous, but it's not unheard of. Um, it's an autoimmune condition where your immune system gets confused and overreacts to hair growing from the hair follicle as a potential allergen that it needs to attack. So a typical person would have hair grow. Your immune system is functioning normally. Everything's fine. But if you have a heightened immune system already and you're predisposed to these autoimmune conditions, um, alopecia is, is one possible example of a expression of this hypersensitive immune system. And as we've been learning about autoimmune conditions, a lot of them are triggered by stressful situations, things that overwhelm us, trauma, um, even, even minor stuff. That's just chronic stress. Maybe it's an abusive relationship or an abusive work environment um, that can also create a heightened immune system's response. And so through this, um, I had already had some hair loss, throughout my life that I had kind of battled, but always was able to, to cover up to some extent. And, um, and then really going through this, the summer after my son was able to get through his treatment, COVID quarantine summer, um, all my hair started to just go away. And so I had both of my boys actually sit with me in our family room of the apartment and help me shave what I had remaining off in July of that year, um, which was a beautiful gift too, in some ways to be able to, to demonstrate to them as well, the strength that it takes to be able to, to go against the grain and do what's right for yourself. Um, even if it doesn't feel good sometimes yeah. to do it. Yeah. What was that like to try and go from, you know, this is my identity and, did you have long hair before or short hair? You know, you have yeah. this style and then you kind of go, well, now I don't. I'm, am I still that person? Cause my hair's not there and I don't look like me in fingers. Still struggle with that every day. I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, like I I'm embracing it. I'm still learning. Um, 
but I still feel like maybe it's not who I exactly am on the inside. Um, if I'm going to be completely honest though, I'd have like a whole voluminous, big kind of really curly, um, kind of fro vibe. If I had to like channel my spirit hair person, (laughs) that's not in my cards either. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it was hard. So when it, the interesting thing about alopecia is that usually the hair loss is progressive. It can be really sudden. You can kind of wake up one day and have it be, be, you could have it lose pretty rapidly. Um, but in my case, I had actually had it pretty progressive over the course of a few years. And I had initially had the hair loss start in the back of my head that started to snake up. Um, so I had a really interesting position on this and only had lost most of the hair on the sides of my head for about three years. So my making lemonade out of lemons approach was to make it into a mohawk, (laughs) which I rocked for about three years. I just had it cut right down to the zero on the sides and had a really long Viking man bun braid thing on top for about three years. And I embraced that so much. Um, but ultimately it was, it, it needed to, that all fell out too. Wow. Before we jumped on and started recording, we were talking about alopecia because obviously Fiona and I both being hairdressers and it was one of those things that we were sort of talking about how, you know, when you have alopecia and you are, it's, you can sort of see, well, I can as a professional, I don't know if the whole world can, but you know, you can see that difference. It's not just shaved. Like there's, there's no hair loss. Like you can see the smoothness. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You can see the smoothness of the scalp. And, you know, we quickly sort of spoke about how people would look at you going, oh, you're sick. And you'd be like, oh, mm, mm, well, yeah, but no, at the same time. Tell us a little bit about that. I get that question all the time. A lot of people will come up to me and they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, how's treatment going? Um, Or they're seeking connection. Um, I have in two flavors. I have maybe some women that have gone through cancer treatment and they're like, oh my gosh, she understands me, Um, which is one flavor. The other flavor, interestingly enough, is usually like older men at like a Costco or some grocery store. (laughs) They're like, hey, yeah, that's cool. And they're just like having a bro moment a little bit because <laughs> they might be bald too. And so I think at the end of the day, everyone just wants to be seen and have that connection with somebody else. And so more often than not, it's really coming from a good place. Um, but it happens all the time. People ask, oh my gosh, how are you doing? Um, inevitably, I'll, you know, I'll honor and say, you know, thankfully that is not something I have to go through. Um, I really try to be conscious about maybe the reason they're seeking that connection because I don't want to block the opportunity to continue a conversation if we can. And, um, but I almost always will turn it into an opportunity to talk about what my son, you know, was able to survive, um, which was really incredible. So, um, that that's pretty, it's an interesting phenomenon. It happens all the time. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. I was running a race in a city nearby and I had a woman run up to me in the race and she goes, Oh my gosh, chemo. 
I said, no, thankfully not. But like in the same breath, she was like, I just got through treatment. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you, you know, being able to get through that. Uh, so it's been a very interesting experience to find connection with people around an experience as intense as that. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, very humbling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you were saying that you're more of a hat person than a wig person. Yeah. Does it, yeah. Does it feel strange to put on a wig? I've never thought of the feeling. how that would feel emotionally to go, okay, well, I've got to pick what what I am going to be. I feel like I have- I'm going to be totally honest. I don't have a wig that I would wear day to day. Yeah. I have a wig that looks like Ariel so that cool. comes out at Halloween <laughs> and I love it. I wear it and I just feel like I transform into another person, which is really cool. But I transform into another person. I don't know if a wig would be able to help me be authentic with who I am. And that's just part of my story and my grieving process. I know for other women, that's a different story. Um, but I, I just kind of have actively chosen not to, not to have a wig and I embrace hat life. Yeah. I also work out a lot. So that sweat would just be a nightmare to manage. Oh, yes. Like that is just absolutely incredible. And I just, I know I've just said incredible a bunch of times, but I just love that you're like, no, well, I'm just me. I'm just going to embrace it. Mm. Yeah. There's something very beautiful about embracing ourselves. Yeah. And I think that doesn't happen enough. Mm-hmm. I think there were two things that I've had as a takeaway in the past few years. One is you have to meet yourself where you're at and just embrace that. And truly, we have no control over so much. And we do have control over some things, but I think surrendering is the healthier approach in a lot of cases. Um, And the other thing I can't remember, (laughs) so we'll have to edit that out. (laughs) Oh, that is just so beautiful. I just think that that is gorgeous in the way. And before, you know, we started recording once again, we were talking about how hair is so um, attached to our identity and it is something that, you know, like going forward in our, in our mind, we think it's such a feminine thing. So having to be, find your femininity and find your sexy so weird <laughs> to try to go through that process. Um, I, I remember when I first created like a Tinder profile and I was like newly divorced and had no clue how to talk about myself, let alone begin to share all of the things I had really even still processed from the previous couple of years. We all see companionship, right? And, and those relationships are meaningful. And I had such an interesting experience on dating apps because I think of the way I look and I know people are like, Oh, you know, there's like this hookup culture and all of that, but I'll be honest. I met some of the most genuine, wonderful people on that app that I'm still friends with now. Um, And I think a large part of that was because they were the ones maybe that were a little more open-minded and thinking, Oh, you know, I wonder what her story is. And they were more interested in what was here than what, 
things looked like. Yeah. Um, but still honored kind of the, the female vibe, you know, that I still choose to embrace. So um, that's been interesting. You know, I definitely, it's an interesting world to walk so many different shoes in on a daily basis because there's, you know, the cancer patient phenomena um, that I, I go through. The other thing I actually experience often too is um, people making judgments about my sexuality and they're, you know, oh, maybe she's, you know, maybe she's gay. I'm not sure. And so there's, you know, I get questions about that too, still from people asking to clarify, I'm not sure what to do with you. And so they're like trying to figure out, all right, what are you? What are you into? Who, like, who is this? And um, I almost always try to just turn that into an opportunity to talk about kind of the bigger story of the experience we've had overall. Um, And then, you know, of course, just stories of resilience and being able to get through that. And almost always we arrive at a point of connection and being able to share space with one another. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Like I've never really thought about how much the hair. How much hair really kind of sets a narrative. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. It sets a narrative. That's Probably should have thought about that. I'm a hairdresser. Yeah. <laughs> but like. it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? That you kind of just like people have a style, but. But are we so wrapped up in that culture because we are hairdressers yeah, that totally. we don't see out? You can be whoever you want to be when you're in our chair. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Do you know, I just, I have gotten so much out of our conversation and I know Courtney's gotten some tears and some feels yes. and a lot as well, but. Erica, have you got some words of wisdom or some words to live by? Because we're just all in awe of you. I think there was one thing I had, um, I had experienced that I feel really gifted to be able to have had happen so early in my life. I'm in my early thirties and I know in a lot of cases on um, timelines are all relative, but I know a lot of people, you know, look at that as still early in life and, and early adulthood. I feel blessed to have had the experience that I did with my son um, because it taught me a lesson that I feel like a lot of people maybe don't get to experience until later in life. And that's that things don't matter when your son or your child is, is dying and, and you are holding them. You literally cannot remember what you bought them for a holiday or what you, I don't know, what you fed them or like whatever the material pieces were of that relationship. You, you can't even bring them to mind. It's just inaccessible. But the things that you do remember when you're in the, that moment are you realize oh my gosh, I'm glad I took that vacation with them. I'm glad I took that trip. I'm glad I went outside my comfort zone to do something with them that gave me this really poignant memory that I can hold on to in this moment. And it's that collection of of memories that I think has really helped me recalibrate and how I want to live my life going forward is focusing on memory making and, and creating a life for my boys that values those moments and doesn't value the material. And I think, like I said, I think it's a lesson that a lot of people don't learn until later on in life where they're at similar crossroads. Just as we age, we, we kind of go through these patterns of thought and 
they might arrive at the same conclusion, but they don't have the luxury of time like I do to be able to change the course of my life, knowing that information. So I feel really blessed to be able to have that and then be able to share it with others so that they can hopefully learn and take lessons from that as well. And they can make decisions in their life that are more true and authentic to what that looks like for them. Yes. It's, it's definitely something that it comes at a time in your life when you realize it and to realize it so early is that's a gift and you've kind of need to see the gift in the experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in going forward, what does life look like for you guys at the moment? Oh my gosh, it's a dance every single day. <laughs> There's so many things on this kind of tightrope. All right, this is happening here. This is happening here. Um, both my sons are going to school full time, which is amazing. Um, August is uh, actually going to a deaf and hearing impaired school um, in the city kind of city just next door to where we live, um, which is really wonderful because he gets access to a classroom that promotes total communication. Um, he still is struggling with expressing himself verbally. So um, having access to other tools like an iPad that he can use to, to use icons that speak for him definitely help, um, definitely help him just get the most out of his day-to-day experience. And going to school to help him learn how to do that's, you know, really critical for his long-term development. So both boys are going to school. Um, I work as a consultant for a lot of different companies. A lot of the things that I'm focused on now, um, having spent a career, interestingly enough, in the healthcare space, um, is taking what I've learned from the patient experience that I had um, and the caregiver experience that I had and help inform companies as they think about what the future of healthcare looks like, how can they make sure that what they're developing is in service of the patient and the caregiver, and, and really it truly is family-centered at the end of the day. Um, and I believe that if we look at product development and, and, and solutions in that direction, the opportunities ahead in terms of supporting just well-being overall are incredible. Um, so I, I'm really passionate about taking those lessons learned and making them useful for the industry at large um, on a day-to-day basis and then training for my next Ironman <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is such an important <laughs> role for you to to be the one consulting and giving the feedback because – I'm, I'm right there with you. I feel like there's so many things that happen for us and they don't, you know, and in medically situations, like there's so much that be, can, can be changed to make it different and better and all the things. Absolutely. Mm. So can we follow along with your story somewhere? Do you give updates? Where do we find you? <laughs> right now I'm on I'm on social media, which is probably the best place to kind of follow along. Um, different platforms get different flavors of the story just by the nature of social media these days. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where you'll get more of the healthcare angle on what's relevant for that that work that I'm doing. Um, I'm also on Twitter. You can find me at the great GR8 Chalupa. <laughs> and I tweet a lot about 
um, a lot about the healthcare related related stuff, but I do get a little more vulnerable on that platform too about some things that I experience day to day. I love that. Erica, you have like made my day and, and just helped me think about even just the things that we've gone through in a different light. And I am so grateful to you for that. I'm so grateful for you guys making space to to be able to share the story and and kind of just talk through it because there's so much that happened and boiling that down even to one podcast episode can be kind of a challenge. So it's just it's wonderful to be able to make friends across the world and, and get to talk about it with one another and, and find that common ground between our human experiences and find that connection. Yeah, exactly. That yeah, connection. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Thank Erica, you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome.